success looks so easy from the outside, but all successful people have had to overcome enormous obstacles along the way. And in many cases, look failure right in the eye. Most successful people don't focus on the struggle and rarely do they talk about it because quite frankly, that's not what creates success. Join us here where we will chat with fierce female entrepreneurs and share the good, the bad, and the ugly of entrepreneurship and talk about the obstacles we have faced and how you can overcome them to reach the success that you desire. I am your host, Cami Lehman, and this is the She's Invincible Podcast. Hey everyone, thank you so much for joining us today on the She's Invincible podcast. And we have an invincible guest for you. Taylor White is an American fine artist and muralist whose work engages with the fundamental elements of being. She has exhibited internationally from Melbourne to Berlin, LA, Miami, Atlanta, Chicago, and Detroit. For Juddy Roller, Outer Space Project, Richmond Mural Project, Murals in the Market, Branded Arts, Blink Cincinnati, and Scope Miami Beach. In 2018, she worked with Google Fiber to create one of the largest public-facing augmented reality murals in the world. In 2021, she completed Raleigh's second augmented reality mural, 8-Bit to 5G, a tribute to the future of gaming and esports in the city of Raleigh. Current clients include Microsoft and Lululemon. Welcome, Taylor. Oh my gosh, it is so great to have you here today on the She's Invincible podcast. Thanks so much. I'm grateful for the opportunity to talk to you. Yes. Oh, so great to share you with our listeners. So let's do this. Let's just jump right in. Let's tell our listeners how you got where you are today and what makes you invincible. Oh my goodness. Um, lifelong artist, kind of one of those, uh, been drawing since as, since I was young enough, old enough to hold a pen, um, have had, you know, I've been fortunate enough to have support and encouragement that I needed as a child to pursue my art and, you know, the attention and praise necessary to make me believe it, I could do it, you know? Sure. So all of the, all of the important components. Um, so really, you know, me, me being, being a professional artist was kind of a foregone conclusion. It was always a matter of how, not if, you know, I had my, my natural abilities and then I had, you know, art classes in school when I was school age and all the way up through high school advanced placement and all of that stuff. So went to, um, Savannah college of art and design majored in illustration, got a BFA in 2007. And from there, um, it was kind of a matter of how I was going to earn a living doing the art that I wanted to do for a while. You know, I, SCED is a great school because it is very career oriented. It prepares students for, um, to go straight into in industry work. Um, so they did a lot of foundational courses on, on kind of how to manage yourself as a business in your chosen industry. So I feel like maybe the business mind came from a little bit from that background, which I appreciated. I guess I kind of thought at, at a certain point that I needed to do an industry 
study in order to make a, a living as an artist because what I was brought up with, like the the mantra that I kept had to keep repeating to myself was like, you have to find out, figure out a way to get paid for your work. Um, and so at the time I was like, well, I have to, you know, go into established commercial illustration. Um, so I did that for a while. I graduated as an illustrator, had an illustration portfolio that I was prepared to shop around and decided to, rather than, you know, follow all my classmates to New York or LA, um, I, I went to Norway and Norway was, was purely circumstantial. Like I, I, I wanted to go somewhere and I thought a good place to start was somewhere where I had people that I knew. Um, so we had an old, an old family friend who is Norwegian and lives with their family in Oslo. Um, so that's where I, I reached out to her, asked if I could come visit for a while and see where things went. Um, and I did not expect to get hired at an ad agency straight out of the gate in Norway. Um, but that's what happened. And so I ended up working for, um, the top ad advertising agency in Norway at the time, which was called tree T R Y. And they did, you know, television and print ads. And at the time we're just getting into web based advertisements. So I did a lot of illustration for web projects and all of that stuff, which was, which was great experience. And after a while, it just kind of became obvious to me that I wasn't interested in being an illustrator in that capacity. You know, I felt very like I was always doing my job and focused on what I was like, focused on, you know, whatever was going on in my fantasy land where I was a successful artist independently. Um, so I was able to use that time not only to, you know, serve the company I worked for, but to also build up my own experience and portfolio and everything. And by the time I was done working there, um, I'd been there for three years and I had gotten into just painting traditionally, you know, at the time, you know, like I, you know, when you work as an illustrator, you're working on tiny, you know, you don't do big projects. You do like, you know, tiny work. I sat at a desk, I had a computer, you know, um, so I was doing small, small scale illustrations and drawings. And so I had never really done anything large scale like that before, but I got invited to, to show some paintings with this gallerist in Oslo, who was from Australia, coincidentally, and just kind of fell in love with it and realized that that's what I really needed to be doing. So the next move, well, I wasn't really sure what the next move was going to be, but I ended up getting, I ended up getting laid off from my job for economic reasons and consolidation around 2010 global economy was not doing too well. And so and when they told me and they were ready to write me a recommendation for another firm in Oslo, I just said like, no, thank you. I, I'm like, this is what I needed. Like I'm ready to go. And I was just too afraid to, to quit, you know? Funny how it works that way, isn't it? I know. Like, it's, yeah. it's been working that way for me my entire life. It's just like, all right, you know, I'm, I'm ready for something. And then, you know, as long as I'm paying attention and open to what's coming along and there's always that's something. the key right pay yeah attention. exactly pay, pay attention. attention and don't just be like yeah. you know I was like oh no that's not what I want my life to look like like I would be closed off to those opportunities so yeah. anyway so what um, happened yeah so I'm kind of trying to get my wits about me and figure out where I want to go next whether I want to go back to the, the United States or, or what and I'm talking online to a friend of mine from college who has lived in you know practically every country on earth since I've known her um 
And she was like, well, you know, after this was December, November, December ish. She's like, well, you know, I have plans to go to Australia after the new year. You should come. And that was that I was like, oh, hadn't thought of that. You know, I suppose I know where Australia is because I know a gentleman from there, but um, I had never considered going and looked it up. They have this tourist visa working holiday. I applied online and I got a notification like two hours later saying that I got accepted. So I was like, all right, I guess that's happening. You know, regroup, move home, get on a plane after New Year's, fly out to LA and fly from LA to Melbourne, Australia. And that's, that was kind of the beginning of my, my present day quest to be where I am today. Right. So I'm, you know, now I'm in, I'm in Australia. I happen to land in the perfect location for what I want to be doing. Like I, I the, the friend that we were staying with lived in Northcote, which is just north of Fitzroy, which is the suburb that is at the time, at least kind of known for having a lot of art galleries and street art murals and everything. Um, now it's all over Melbourne, but at the time I think it was pretty concentrated in that area. And so I uh, just ended up kind of milling around for a little while. And for like the first week, I was just like, I guess I got to find a job or something or other um, and then find a house. I'm like, well, I mean, this is this is all new. I'm living in a share house. I'm sharing a room with my friend and living out of a suitcase and like thinking like I, the sky's the limit. I could go do whatever. And then I end up kind of through the social circle that I accumulated quickly, like, uh, you know, took a quick job in a restaurant doing serving, which I'd never done before. And I was terrible at, didn't last very long at that job, but I, I accumulated the, the social circle that would ground me in Melbourne for the next two years. So there was that. And then they were connected to the Juddy Roller, um, which was at the time, just this guy who was the boyfriend of one of the servers that I knew. Um, and so I had put my small illustrations in some group shows at that point. Like I just like, sh- cranking them out and like sitting in my room, drawing these little things and just like shelling them out to galleries like that. Um, just getting whatever out there as possible. And then, so that by that point, they're like, you know, you should talk to Sean. And he was doing a lot of street art related art events and curation. And so they invited me to participate in one of those events. It was a laneway at like an alley that like they have their, their studio building is, you know, on this corner of this alley and they kind of have the whole, this whole area that opens up behind their building. And so he had, was basically curating street artists to come in and paint the walls and everything. And at that time I was like, I'm like, I'm not, I don't know how to use a spray can or anything like that. I'm not, I'm very new to the idea of putting my work on the streets, but you know, once I did that, I was like, Oh, boom, you know, like the, I go from, you know, little squares to, to like big street pieces really quickly. And I'm like, okay, this is kind of, this kind of feels like my wheelhouse right here. So from there, I just started promoting myself as, as a street artist, putting work, just, just, you know, putting work outside as much as possible and kind of gained fast friends that way. Just did project after project and bigger and bigger projects, got hooked up with this small, uh, agency out there, which is a, you know, two person business, but they were connected to, you know, different art fairs and events and all kinds of stuff. So through there, I, uh, kept busy for the time that I was in Melbourne. And then after about two years, I ran out of opportunities for my visa. Well, I would say, I, you know, I kind of ran out of obvious opportunities and it was kind of like, I needed to make a decision whether, whether 
Melbourne was where I wanted to be because if I was going to, I could have applied for a, a more complete visa, but American and my family's over there. And I don't think that I really want to establish myself like a 24 hour travel experience away from my family. So I wasn't, you know, I wasn't, I won't say I was ready to leave because I probably had another couple of years in me as, as in, in Australia, but just circumstantially, I ended up coming back in 2013 end of 2012. And so at that point I have, I'm kind of at another crossroads, which is like, I moved to the West coast or, you know, what, um, had friends in LA and San Francisco and all of that. And I had some opportunities that I could have taken. And I was feeling having traveled around and lived in rental units and share houses for like the past, however many years I was traveling, like I, you know, five, seven years, I was just like, I really need to feel grounded. And what I really wanted was like my own space that was like mine, you know? And I had that opportunity here in Raleigh, which is where I am from. So I took over a property that was owned and controlled by my grandfather. It was a process. It was like, I had to, it was in bad shape. It was being operated by a, like an electrician in a kind of a hoarder. So I, but I was just like, you know, I could, I could clear this thing out. I could live in this part. I could rent this part out. Like possibilities are there. I'm like, I'm into it. So I had to, like I told my dad and he was all about it. And it's like, well, you're gonna have to convince your grandfather that this is something you're serious about. Um, so I did over the course of a few months, like put together a plan. And then I took out a loan, did the renovations. And now I rent a small building. It's two buildings on a large parcel the industrial parcel and I rent the smaller building to six other artists. And so my bills are, my bills are covered and I, my cost of living is zero. So that's like, I mean, that's, I think a key point in kind of my evolution was taking that, making that decision. And it was kind of a calculated decision to establish myself where I knew I had access to my, my resources, good resources in my own space. The sacrifice being, I wasn't close to the art world that I wanted to be a part of. And also like, it kind of provided me with the freedom of opportunity to still continue to pursue that at a distance as much as I could and um, develop considerable financial stability as well. So. Well, that's lifelong, right? That's, that's yeah. something. Yeah. Once you get that. And as young as you were at that time, once you get that, like that will stay with you for the rest of your life. And I love that you bloomed where you planted yourself, right? Mm-hmm. Like you, you, so you weren't in the art district that you wanted to be in, but you created that right here where you were. And that to me is just amazing. It, and, you know, this morning I wrote a post and, and one of the things I said was, if you don't take control of your life, your life will take control of you. And you are a perfect example mm-hmm. of that exact thing is that you literally took life by the hand and said, this is what we're going to do. And, you know, at such a young age, that is so important. And I think I'm so grateful to have you here because when we talk to people that are in their twenties, say, and they're just, you know, trying to figure it out, like you, you figured this out and this is what works for you. Mm-hmm. And I, I just love that you're sharing this because this people can apply these principles to anywhere they are in their life, where they live, their business, anything. And I love that, Taylor. Especially possible now, like anything is possible. People are fleeing the big cities at record pace. Like it's everything's online. We're all, you know, you can be in charge of your, of your marketing and your branding yourself. Like it's, it's possible to 
just make, you know, you, you don't have to plunge yourself into debt in the way that you might have used to in order to achieve what you want to achieve, you know? It's amazing. So, you know, my next question, of course, is what makes you invincible? And it almost sounds silly to ask the question because (laughs) that's probably everything you've done. So, but go ahead, give us some words. I mean, I think that is probably it. Like just the ability to kind of overcome the the chatter in in my head, which exists in every young artist and indeed probably everybody's head, which is like, I can't do this. And I'm not, I, I need these circumstances to be a certain way in order for me to accomplish my goals or whatever. And it's like, no, I don't kind of emancipated myself from that way of thinking, which is that like my circumstances control the outcome of my life. You know, they do in a way and you can still be in control of that and be calculating and, you know, carve your own path in your own way and still be successful and define that for yourself, you know? This is fabulous. Oh, this is so great. So let's speak to what we're saying here about, you know, what would you say to young self-employed artists or even just the younger generation in general, right? Um, As to like, how do they establish, you know, themselves that, you know, in starting a business, you know, the biggest thing people I see is they underprice, right? Yeah. And I know you and I have had conversation around this and I hope we can dig deep into this um, and, sure. and what that looks like. But, you know, it's there's a lot that goes into that. It's not just like, hey, you give me some money and I'm going to go paint something. So let's talk about that, you know, um, how you deal with clients, especially I imagine that as when you were in your 20s, you were dealing with clients that were significantly older than you in many ways, mm-hmm. um, as well. Right. So you have to be able to rise up to meet them where they are as well. So let's talk about that. And, um, and really just how do you advocate for yourself? Like, these are just, this is, we could go on for a day, right? Yeah. There's a, yeah. there's a lot in there. I mean, I have, I have yeah. a, do have a lot to say on the subject having let's do it experience the, 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 the breadth of emotion when it comes to that kind of thing. So, you know, business is uncomfortable for people with an artist temperament and that's just kind of the, the truth of it. And a lot of artists are hungry and desperate for work. And so they'll work for anything, but they don't, you know, they don't sit there and think about their, you know, their profit and loss like per project. It's like, I mean, I've been undercut by other artists who did a project for $800 that w- that really should have been like $5,000 and that happens, but you have to just, you have to know how to set your prices and set the value of your work. I mean, the first thing you need to be honest is, is a, is a strong portfolio. So you need to be able to establish that you're consistent and credible with the work that you're making. Um, and if you need to like, you know, if you're, if you're trying to be a muralist and you don't know how to find walls, like you can find one wall and paint it over and over again, or you can set up plywood in the back in your backyard and paint that over and over again and just establish like, the strong set of images of you showing that you know how to work large scale. So that's the first thing for pricing. You know, you want to make sure like art is art is a little tricky because every, every artist is different. So you have a little bit of a subjectivity to how to set your value, but it's also true that there are a lot of young artists willing to work. And so you kind of have to understand what the market will bear in your area and set your prices accordingly, especially when you're first starting out. I think the most reliable place to start is either square price per square foot or price per hour and just estimate, like understand how long it's going to take you to do something, especially if you're young and you're not as efficient, like, you know, you might charge a thousand dollars or something for a project that takes you like a month to complete. And then you're making, you know, you're making nothing for your time. 
So, you know, you can get, pay yourself 20 bucks an hour and calculate that out and see if it sounds fair to your client based on your, your level of experience and how badly they want to work with you and everything. Um, so I do a, a base rate by calculating my hour, my square footage by a dollar amount that I set. I have a, I have a sliding scale that I apply depending on the circumstances. Um, if it's, a, if it's a small business, I like to cut them a little bit of a break. Um, but I offer, you know, bigger clients, basically I would say fair market value for what I'm producing. And I don't like it's, I don't gouge people ever. Like I start with what I would, what I want for it. And I cut back if I need to. And then I also fought like factor in travel costs, trap material costs, accommodation, if that's necessary, you know, um, anything like that. And I try to, I keep it easy. I just go for averages. I'm like, what's the average cost of staying in a hotel in this location for this many times, this much time, or like, what's my average material cost? Like, I don't know, is it $200, $500, whatever. And like, you know, I don't like to do math. So I'm just like, okay, like $500 extra for materials, a grand, if it's hotel travel stipend, you know, like all of that stuff, like, and just add that in and give clients a flat fee. Cause I think that I don't like to surprise people. I like to just know what my costs are going to be. And then serve it up to one plate and let them be done thinking about it. And then you also factor in miscellaneous because there's always opportunities to put yourself in a situation where you wish you had charged extra for this thing, you know, and that you can either add 10% to the top of your, what you've added up for your base rate, or you can just have it like a contingency in your contract where you're like, if I have to do extra work beyond what we agreed to, it's going to be X per hour. And the key is communication. You know, you want to be able to make sure that that's all like established up front and understood, understood up front. So you don't have to like come back and be like, actually, you know, because then, then you have an argument. It's like, I don't have to pay you that. Cause that's not what we agreed to. It's like, well, yeah, but meh. yeah. Um, and so that, it's like, right? avoid, you know, you want to be clear in your communication and avoid arguments, but also, you know, if you need to, to, stand up for yourself. Like you should have the, the ability to have that conversation politely and argue your case that it's like, okay, this is, I'm actually doing more than what we agreed to. So we need to add a little extra. And most people are ch chill about it, but depends on how you, how you act towards them. So, I mean, financially, like, and, and you know, like, don't, I don't want to say like, like artists do underprice themselves, but also don't overprice yourself too fast um, because there's nowhere to go from there. Um, if you price yourself out of the market too soon, you're kind of effed. It's it's not as easy to lower your rates. Yeah, sure. People um, are watching too, right? Yeah, exactly. It's like, oh, you know, I mean, it's yeah. especially true in fine art. Like once you up, like once you increase your cost of your work, you can't reduce it because A, that, that pisses off collectors that have already paid for you, you know, and it kind of looks, it, it doesn't look good. That's an integrity thing, right? Exactly. So, yeah. Like how, how did the value drop right suddenly? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's so, awesome. So what's it like to work with Lululemon and, um, Microsoft and what was that like? I mean, it's, you know, it's honestly just like any other job. Um, it's a little more complicated because you're dealing with, you know, a bunch of different systems. Um, you know, it's, it's easy to get paid fast when you're working with one person. It's not easy to get paid fast when you're working with a place, a, a company that has to put it through payroll. You know, you might have your point person to communicate with, but they might have to go up through the chain and discuss something with someone else. And so things just can get a little more complicated with communication and things. But other than that, like, 
I've had a great experience working with most of my corporate clients that I've worked with. Like they all respect me as an artist and I in turn respect them and their, you know, time and effort and the fact that they hired me, you know? So, but I also, I have contracts and I know how to negotiate my contracts. I'm always editing my contracts Great big court, you know, big corporations will have their own contracts and I know how to read them. Um, and so like, I would, that's another piece of advice I would circle back with artists is like, have a contract, be clear in your contract, always update your contract. Every time you have an experience that you're like, I wish that was in my contract, put it in your contract. Cause you don't want to make that mistake again. So my contract is like all of these provisions of like this, 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 and this, if this happens, then this happens. And it just makes life so much easier over time. And you don't, you minimize the chances that you're going to feel like you shortchanged yourself in a job and it makes the client feel communicated with and respected. Um, know your copyright law. Like I guarantee you, if you work with a corporate client, they're going to send you a boilerplate contract. And if you're not paying attention, you'll sell the rights to your work without even noticing. Um, that's like the number one thing I run into where I have to negotiate cop the, the copyright. Sometimes it works out for the better because I can say like, listen, if you want, you know, the price I quoted you is for, these rights transferred, but if you want more, we can renegotiate the price. And every now and then I'll get to triple what I quoted, but you know what I mean? So it's just like, know that stuff and pay attention. I have a lawyer that I work with to negotiate on my behalf, which is a really good investment, especially with larger, larger companies and stuff. And then he'll, cause he'll catch things that I don't notice. So that's it. And then it's also like, I guess I'm just going to continue on with the advice train. Cause I have more to say, like, it's fine. Yeah. If you're, no, if you're interested. Let's, yeah. Let's I, I am. <laughs> and I know our listeners are probably hanging on to every word that you say, because all of this advice can go is like a blanket across every platform of everyone in business. These are the things they should be doing. So yeah, I definitely. just love this. So yeah, let's do a few it's, more. Yeah. It's better to learn early than to work. You know, I see it like I spend some I'm on Reddit every now and then and design forums and people will be like, you know, I can't, you know, I, yeah, I can't believe I'm expected to work for free and blah, blah, blah. It's like, yeah, well then don't, you know, like you don't have to work for free and it's important that you establish your, your boundaries and your integrity early on in your career. So you don't get that reputation and you don't find yourself feeling cheated and then becoming jaded about your profession of like, quickly. So I would say I have two more, I think maybe two more main points that I would make, which is first of all, like always be polite to your clients. Like, you know what Halen's razor is? It's just, it, it never chalk up to malice, what could easily be explained by ignorance. So like, it's a, it's just like, if they make a request that you think is unfair or doesn't work for you, like don't assume that they are at odds with you. Just assume that they didn't know any better. So it goes back to the copyright thing where I get like client, a contract to review and I'll be like, Oh, this isn't appropriate. And I'll go back. And like, I'm not saying they're trying to like, I'm not assuming that they're trying to screw me. I'm assuming that they just didn't know. And 10 out of 10 times, they just had, they just didn't, it's just boilerplate from, from their end. And they're going to be like, Oh yeah, I didn't realize that. Well, this is like, so tell me more about what you actually want to do with this piece. And it's like, okay, well this, okay, well then I'll, explicitly spell out those points in the copyright and then just say like anything beyond that needs to be expressed in writing. It's pretty easy. And then, you know, I think that my life became much more pleasant when I started approaching clients with like a, you know, client requests with a yes, yes. And, you know, approach rather than like, you know, if they come to me and be like, can you do this? I'd I'd be like, no, no, like that's like, that's not what we talked about. This is extra. Like "Mm, you're you're asking me to do extra work. It's like, 
And yeah, I can do that. This is what it's going to take to do that. And usually it involves more money. And a lot of times they're like, okay, well, in fact, like, I think I can, you know, we don't want to do that. And sometimes it's like, perfect, I'll pay you more money. And then everybody wins. So it's always like, even if I don't want to do something, I'll say like, I could do that and then walk them through with what it would actually take and what it would actually entail to do that thing. And usually I can convince people that it's not a good idea to do it. (laughs) That's awesome. And that's my, you know, that's in the back of my mind, that's my ulterior motive. It's like, I'm trying to, I'm trying to discourage you from making me do this thing that I don't want to do. So like, I'll talk you through it. And sometimes they're like, well, actually we really need this. And I'm like, okay, fine. Like priming, you know, priming walls myself is one of those things. That is so awesome. So you either um, don't have to do it or you get another 10 grand, right? Yeah. Well, <laughs> not usually that much, but like something yeah, like know. that, like I'll get, I'll get more. I'll just be like, that's an added service. So <laughs> you can do it yourself or you can pay me to do it. So, awesome. um, so yeah, it's like, it's like, don't let yourself be steamrolled. And a lot of artists will, will feel intimidated and feel like they are obligated to do something at a client's request, even though they're not, but also don't be belligerent either because you're trying to get repeat clients. So, and I think the last piece of advice is like, no job is ever going to be the one that makes or breaks your career. So like, just don't do what doesn't feel right. Even if you're hungry, because it's not like you're going to sell yourself short if you do that. And then you're going to end up feeling like you're not, you're not, you don't feel good at the end. And it's like, that's the kind of the whole problem with artists being complaining about being asked to work for free is like we we are you know it's it's kind of known that artists is can be cheap labor you know because we're willing to do stuff or you know people who don't know any better are willing to do stuff for way less than they're valued at so like i've definitely been in situations where i've compromised like i was like i know that i need to like i should work for twice this much or i shouldn't you know this doesn't work but i shouldn't say anything because i don't want to lose the job that kind of thing yeah. And then it's like, I end up getting like getting walked on, getting taken advantage of allowing myself to get taken advantage of not with malice, but just like, not necessarily with malice, but just as a consequence of me not being willing to say anything because it doesn't feel right. Because I'm afraid that if I say something, I'm not going to, I'm never going to work. And, you know, I'll never work in the sound again, that kind of stuff. So like, it's not a big deal. Hold out, know your boundaries and apply those with integrity and with compassion And you'll do fine, I think. Awesome. Oh my gosh, that is so great. And, you know, I know we talked about this uh, the first time that we talked about just, you know, when you do devalue yourself like that, you're not getting your ideal client. You're getting, right. the, you're getting the person who can afford you, who absolutely is not your ideal client. Exactly. And then you pound yourself into the ground because then your worthiness and your value is starting to devalue in your own mind because mm-hmm. of the way that you're working and the resentment that you're feeling. And, oh my gosh, I'm yeah. so you're also- you brought that up potentially saturating the market with client, like with work that you don't want to do, you know, like you're, you know, if you're a local artist and you're like, I'm going to take every crappy little mural on the back of a pizza parlor that they, you know, but what I really want to be doing is bigger, like bigger works or whatever. It's like, well, you're everywhere. So we want to see like this other artist come in, you know? And And it's like, yeah, you make, you can make money and making money is good. But when you're establishing your career as an artist, like there's more to it than just making money. And it's, it's being intentional about placing yourself, how, like, Positioning, your, positioning yourself how you want to be perceived and you know you don't want to be perceived as someone who does cheap work and you also like 
when you say no to things that aren't ideal, you make room for the things that are. That is fabulous. Uh, well, let's talk about that too, because you have some ideal things going on right now. Um, I know you have an exhibit right there in your hometown. So tell us about the pursuit of happiness. My solo show. Um, it, yes. So, you know, I guess speaking of making things happen for yourself when they're not happening for you is, uh, you know, I've, I've been busy doing public art projects as my primary source of income for 10 years or so. And I, but I've always kind of considered myself a painter for some reason. Um, and so like, I, I've always felt like there was kind of a missing in my studio practice and that I didn't have a consistent output of fine art and I wasn't, it wasn't a reliable source of income anyway. So I kind of put that back on the back burner, you know, I'd make paintings. I could make paintings and sell two of them, you know, and then have, like 10 paintings and sell two of them. And then I have like eight that are just sitting in the back of my studio collecting dust. And I just felt like I could, I could enumerate the reasons that I wasn't feeling successful as a fine artist. And also like, you know, just being focused on other things. And so I, I knew that like, I wanted to get work into galleries in addition to my mural practice and establish myself like a greater breadth of things that I do as an artist for myriad reasons I wasn't finding myself able to get the attention of the galleries that I wanted and part of that was I was my work was still not developed enough and I was still pretty young with the time that I could have been spending developing my studio practice I was cranking murals out and trying to take every job I could that was in alignment with what I wanted to do and some that weren't. But after a while, I was just like, I, I just don't like, I just don't gravitate to the process of networking with galleries at the moment. It is a long game thing. And I can go into a little bit about that like later, but I'm like, I'm not, you know, it's an uphill battle for me to get into the galleries that I want to get into. And meanwhile, I haven't shown here in Raleigh and I'd like to do that. And also like, there's not, I don't, there's not a gallery in Raleigh that I feel like I would be a good fit to work with either. And this, as far as establishing credibility goes, I felt like I, I just, I just felt called to take it on myself. I had seen a couple of other artists lead by example in terms of developing and pop like pop-up exhibitions and thought like, Oh, you know, it'd be, it would be cool to just rent a space, produce the work and hang it and staff it and sell it and keep, you know, hundred percent of the profit, less expenses. And so that's something I had considered for a couple of years, two years, maybe. Um, and again, for different reasons and limiting belief being one of reasons and circumstances being another, like I just, I kind of let it, I put it off for, for a while and then 2020 rolled around and then it became impossible. And so like, I, I circled back to the idea during the, the pandemic and I was like, man, like I would have I would love to do this. And I think that I've got nothing but time at this point. Um, like my, my work actually remained pretty consistent during the pandemic, like my income other than the first couple of months. So, um, but I did like, you know, have plenty of time to reflect and create new, new work and, and plan this thing out, or at least in my head, plan it out. And so I thought, okay, well, Putting together a solo show is something I would I would like to do, and I'm I'm going to start taking steps to inquire about what that would take, because you know you have to put together like I have to put together a plan for that too. I can't just like slap my work up in a gallery and have it expect to be successful. So I started asking around at what commercial spaces we're going for, and at this time, you know, COVID had pushed out a lot of the small businesses. COVID and and public unrest and all of that stuff had pushed out a lot of the businesses downtown. So I knew that now would be a pretty safe time to start looking for 
a space and finding out what it would take to get it. And so that, that initial inquiry just stopped the start of the ball. And like within days it was rolling and people were talking and like, I'll help you with this. I'll help you with that. Like I got this connection, blah, 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 blah. blah. So I end up looking around at spaces. And at this point I'm still kind of like, I'll just, I'm just looking, you know, but then I, I come to the space that I wound up renting and it was just like, I didn't have to spend a dime on upfitting. Like everything was, the drywall was in, it was crisp, it was freshly white. Like the room was open. There was plenty of wall space. The track lighting was in. I was like, all right, I'm not going to get this opportunity ever again. So I'll, I'll, I'll take it. And so I committed to renting the space. The landlord insisted I rent for three months, which was more than I had planned. Like I, I was like okay, a couple weeks tops for a month. So that obviously made it the financial risk a bit heavier. Um, but when I thought about it, I was just like, listen, like this is, this is one of those God told me to do it moments. Like I got to just, you know, I don't know how this is going to happen and I don't know how this is going to work, but I'm going to sign the lease and pray, you know, hope that it like, I'll just know, like, I just know that it's like one way or another, it's going to pan out for better or worse. So, and that's what it took. I was just like, like, you know, I have to jump over this fence, but I'm not doing it for whatever reason. So I throw my hat over and I have to go get it. So you know? <laughs> yes. That's awesome. So, um, so that was it Threw my head over the fence. So that was three months prior to my opening date. And I knew that like, since I agreed to lease the space, I had to do it sooner rather than later. So that gave me a lot less time to, to work on the putting the show together. So like the corpus of the body of work that I'm put in the show was done in the three months leading up to the show, aside from a few pieces that I had already, I was already in process, but you know, so I was like, okay, well, this space is this big. So I've got to make these many pieces to fill it. So, and then I have to figure out how I'm going to like, what I have to price them at in order to make back my, like, you know, how much am I going to expect to sell? Like whatever, all of this businessy stuff. I just did, I just leveraged the connections that I have and knew that I had a following that was ready for this. I knew that the timing, although it seemed insane on paper was right because it was like, just, it was, I committed to it just before like the state mandate started to get lifted about social gatherings and things like not being sure that that was going to get lifted by the time I was supposed to open, but it did thankfully. And then let it materialize. I had, I found my assistant hired, like I had hired two employees to work the gallery and that's, that's how it's, you know, the open. And then, you know, I did like my, my mother and my parents were enthusiastic and integral to planning the opening event and everything. And like, she like hand, hand lettered all the, like we did paper invitations. She like hand lettered them. She's retired. So, so yeah, like planned it, you know, just got beer and wine from Costco, paid a caterer, like traded a caterer for some stuff and like planned an opening event. And it was huge. Like, it was awesome. Like I had a hundred people, I think probably come through. That's amazing. Through over the course of, you know, I had a VIP opening and then I had a, like a collector opening. Then I had opened it up to everybody. Uh, It was open to everybody, but (laughs) you know, you got to like make the collectors feel good. Yeah. So there was, that, that was it. Like I made back my I made back my expenses. That's awesome. So, and so it's open till this. It's open till August twenty. August twenty eighth is the last day, and I think we're we're going to do at least one more event, if not two. I think we decided the other day that we're going to do. We might want to do a closing event because I will say that I appreciate as much as like I don't need 
galleries in order to do a show. Like that's obvious. Like I, so like I have tremendous appreciation, especially after putting this on for like what galleries, what all galleries do. It's not my ideal like job managing my inventory, making sure people come to see it, like advertising, promotion, like payroll, all of that stuff. Like there's some days where it's completely dead because it's just like people don't like, I can't get walk-in traffic because they'll, you know, all right. Like that's, that's a challenge that is galleries have to deal with. And like, you have to spend a lot of energy and time and, and everything, like making sure that people get, people see the work. So there've been challenges and new ex- like learning experiences and everything. And I wasn't, I wasn't like under any illusion that it would be easy. Like I'll just put my work up and everybody will come and everybody will buy it. And that's like, that's just, and you know, like, but it's also like, okay, like I don't, I don't enjoy this part of it. Like the admin part of it, you know? Um, Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, as an artist, you're creative and you have vision and, you know, all of your mind is just working all the time. I can't imagine that you would be wired for one thing and then wired for the business side of it as well. Like that just seems like business business in one sense I can do, like I can easily manage myself and my contracts and, you know, like my, all of that, but like just, just sales. Mm-hmm. Like I don't enjoy sales and I don't enjoy like the managerial part of that part. Like I negotiate a price for a mural any, like all day long, but like selling a product is a different animal altogether, especially when it's art. So it's, and especially at that price point, you're not buying something just because you like it, you know? Yeah. And isn't it backwards a little bit? Because, you know, when you're negotiating mur- murals, they're not finished. Right. So you're just selling they're like custom. It's like, yeah. yeah, it's a different, it's a different thing than buying a piece of art off the wall. Because right. you're commissioning something that's that's for you and for your space, and it's a completely different thing than than selling a piece of art. But there's probably like a little more public appeal to to murals as opposed to like fine art on a wall. You know, I would still consider my fine art income unreliable, and I would still love to broaden my audience for that, like in my collector base. And I would still love to do traditional like gallery relationships and everything. And like I'm thankful that I have murals too. I was going to say fallback on, but that's not the word I want to use, but I'm just grateful that I have the, the muraling income. It's been really, it's been consistent and it's been substantial. So. And you enjoy it, right? Which yeah. is more important I mean, than anything is like, yeah, for the most part. Largely <laughs> I enjoy it. Yes. <laughs> yes. Sometimes I'm like, oh my God, do I like, how old am I? Can I stop? Can I retire? Well, and when you're out, yeah, no, you cannot retire. <laughs> you still have a lot of work to do, but, um, when you're outside, right? If it's a hundred degrees, that makes it difficult, right? So like there's there's all of the different things that play into that. But you yeah. know, in any business, you know, as a business coach, we recommend you should have several streams of income, like th- mm-hmm. three to five. So while you're saying like, you know, you have the murals and that's great and there's the fine art. So there's different streams there. Oh that, yeah, like there's yeah, that, that is filling. Yeah. And that, and that's fulfilling. So, mm-hmm. and then you get to pick the ones you want to spend the most time on the things you enjoy the most, or if they bring in the most revenue or whatever it is that rings your bell. But I love that. Tell our listeners, where can they find the information about the murals first? The easiest way to me through the internet is, um, Instagram. And okay. my handle is Tay Lurk, T-A-Y-L-U-R-K. It's a nickname. And then from there, like you can, you know, that's, I flick things out all the, I flick things out on the Instagram all the time, stories and posts and stuff. And then I have links to my website and ways to get in touch with me and everything too. So 
Awesome. And we'll also include, I would love to include a link in the show notes. So if you're listening right now, there'll be links to the show in the show notes for all the ways you can reach Taylor. Uh, Instagram is the best way, but also we'll include the address in Raleigh where you can go and catch that uh, exhibit pursuit of happiness. That is awesome. Thank you so much. It's a short drive from everywhere else. (laughs) Everything's just down the road, right? Mm -hmm. I love it. Well, I have some friends in that area, so I'm going to make sure to encourage them as well. They're probably listening. Um, So this has been so great. I absolutely love having you here and hearing your story and just being able to share you with our listeners, because as I mentioned a few times, everything you're, you're sharing is that can apply to any business, any mindset, any vision, right? For, for planning or what you're doing. And now a word from our sponsor, Christine Trumbull, founder of Coaching the Climb, understands the challenges of building a successful business. She's faced many of those challenges herself and helped hundreds of clients build successful businesses. With the launch of her new podcast, The Climb with Christine, you will hear the same advice she gives her clients, as well as conversations with experts in a variety of topics, including business, health, relaxation, mindset, kids, and fashion. Check it out on iTunes, The Climb with Christine, and be sure to subscribe, download, and give her a rating and review. You know, on the She's Invincible podcast, we promise our listeners that we're going to bring fierce female entrepreneurs. And I know some days it doesn't feel like that, right? (laughs) But you are a fierce female entrepreneur and you are really paving the way for other artists. And, you know, what happens is people see you today, right? They see this Taylor, the one who's been to Berlin and, you know, Melbourne, where you've been and they've been all over. And, um, they see you now, but they never saw your struggle. And there's so many people in the world that they want to have the success that you have, but they are not willing to put up with the struggle and the Mm -hmm. obstacles that you had to put up with to get here. And you know what I think many people don't realize is that if it weren't for the obstacles and the struggles and the mindset and all the lessons that you learned along the way, you wouldn't be the tailor the same Taylor who sits before me right now. Mm -hmm. And so this is what molds us, right? This is what grows us into that better version of ourselves. So I would love right now to pull back the curtain a little bit and let our listeners in on that Taylor, the Taylor that journeyed to the place you are right now. So we're going to start. Are you ready? Mm -hmm. (laughs) You almost look surprised. (laughs) I mean, yeah, I know it's never fun, right? But, but you know what? this is the hope that we have an opportunity to deal to the people coming on after us, right? They're journeying. And if they can learn from our wisdom, our lessons, our mistakes, then we can make that journey even more rich for them. So we're going to start with the good. And I would love for you to share one story with us about the good part of your journey. Besides the fact that I get to do what I love and enjoy for my entire like existence in life, like that's, that's my favorite part of what I'm doing, you know, I think, you know, I think I'll, I'll circle back to what I was talking about in terms of business, because I think that's probably going to be as, as resonant as anything. You know, I had gotten the hang of and learned how to 
understand my value and advocate for it without in being intimidated in the last several years of doing my work. And I, and I think that like the difference that I feel now in terms of being afraid to make the request that I need to make in order to feel like I have at least been in integrity in myself versus like, this is like several years ago, I'm still in my mind, like a young artist. I haven't really gotten, I haven't really gotten any measure of of major recognition at that point, still kind of in my head about like, not going to make it, you know, that kind of stuff. And, and I get this call to do a, a, a mural project and it's for a well-recognized name. You know, I'm going to try to be vague in these stories just to like, yeah, not be too on, on the point about calling things out or whatever. But so, and I'm like, Oh, like they want to, you know, it's, it's who, and they want me when it's where and like, well, great. And so it's like, you know, it's initially starts out as this small mural project because it's like, it's one of those things where it's like a national project. There's a mural in every city and they have this small budget. It's going to be a small thing, social media magnet, that kind of stuff. So I agree to do it. And they tell me what the budget is. I'm like, okay, that's, you know, that's fine. At that point, it's about what I would expect to make. And through the pro, like I meet the project manager, like we get along great. He's like really enthusiastic, loves about art, like really enthusiastic about my work. And when we like through the process of, of talking and discussing the project, like he's like, it ends up turning into like twice, like the scope of the project ends up ballooning to twice as twice what it was initially, um, what was, what it was initially planned to, to do and what I had agreed to. So, which was exciting for me because I'm always looking for ways to get bigger and go bigger and do better and everything. But we end up switching walls from the small wall that we had originally planned for various reasons, like accessibility and everything to this much bigger one, which I really wanted to, to do. And I was thrilled to be able to, able to do it. But at a certain point, like, I think I, I don't know, know who I was talking to, but I mentioned like, the like how big the project was and and how much I was getting paid for it and they they're just they their jaw dropped there was like like what like what are you you're doing that much work for how much and you know I was sit there and go like yeah well like this is what I mean I agreed to it and this is what their budget is and this is yada 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 and I'm like dude like Taylor like this is a crossroads for you it's like do you want to be that artist or do you want to be a different kind of artist you know and I had this, just this reckoning moment of like, actually, I really need to be making twice what they're paying me for this because it's like, it's, it's not, it's more than twice the amount of work. And it involves like, not only a bigger, I have to say who it is. It's, it was the Google fiber mural because they added this augmented reality component. Like not only is the, was the wall, it was supposed to be this, this small piddly little mural for like, sorry, we didn't lay your fiber. Here's a mural like ad ad campaign basically. And, uh, and it ballooned to this massive project. And it was like huge mural, a lot more time and energy put into the project. And then this AR component, which I was supposed to consult on and, and do all this extra work. And they flew me out to um, Mendocino or is that where it is? They flew me out to California to like fill, so that they could film me doing some stuff for, for Google Fiber. And I'm like ready to accept what they were initially offering me as a, as a budget, you know? And I realized like, I can't, you know, I could easily just say like, I agreed to this, so I'm going to accept it. Or I could have the conversation with them. And I don't think I'll forgive myself if I don't have the conversation, you know, I will end up being, I will end up being that artist that doesn't have, that doesn't advocate and doesn't have that conversation. So I, you know, I did, and I sat down with them and I said, like, listen, I know I agreed to this amount. The circumstances around the project have changed as much and as I, and I want to do the project, but I, I need more, I need more money. And this is how much I think I need. And he like understood 
And he said, like, I, you know, I have to go back to my people and, and make the request. And like, you know, being it being Google, like there's a misconception that they're just a money fountain and that it doesn't like all you need to do is go like this and you, you have money in your pocket. But like they actually have to go through this process to request the money and get it. And like they budget out for projects and they're like, who are you? You're Google Fiber Wear Durham? Raleigh, like, why are we giving you this much money? You know, so it's not that easy. And I do understand how that works, you know, but long story short, you know, he comes back and he's like, well, I I got you. I got you more than what you asked. I think he was like, you know, I was going to ask you, ask for this, but I think you should be getting that. So I asked for that and you got it. And I'm like, okay. You know, and even if, you know, I had to be prepared to make good on my, you know, it's like, I had to understand what I was making the request for. And if, if they said no, what I was going to do, like, was I going to walk away from the project or was I not going to walk away from the project? I didn't want to walk away from the project, but like, if you're negotiating, you have to have in the back of your mind, like what you're willing to do if they don't, you know, you can just say, okay, thanks. I'm, I guess I, I just thought I'd ask, or you can say like, well, then I need to not do this part, you know, Yeah. which could have been, it could have been a sacrifice. I was like, man, you know, like this is the biggest project I've done so far. You know, I'm being like shepherded around to all these different like spots and filmed and like all this stuff. And we're doing AR and like, but I, I, I can't, I, I at least have to make the request. Otherwise I'm just going to feel like a heel, you know? Yeah. And now don't you, every time you think about, I mean, this is your best moment right now, right? Every time you think about it. Yeah. It it was a turning point. It was a defining moment in terms of like, just being able to be like, okay, I, I actually am not like, I'm not that I'm not that person anymore. And this is a big project. And I think it's a difference between like fleecing them because they're Google and knowing that I'm putting in a lot of extra work for not a lot of money. And it's not a small business. Like, you know, they, they can afford it. So there's that. Would you have been willing to walk away from the whole project? No, (laughs) honestly, (laughs) at that point, honestly, like at that point, I would have, I would have probably tried to negotiate further. If they said like, we can't, we can't give you this. I'd be like, okay, well, like, what can you do? Yeah, you know, because right. like, that, you know, that's another part of the conversation is like, just because they don't say yes right away doesn't mean that the door's closed. And you, as you said in the beginning, like have a great portfolio, right? And this is a piece of sure. a great portfolio. So there is, there's a value to that as well. So mm-hmm. I just had to ask that question because I know people are thinking that, oh, would she have walked away? So that's amazing. That's amazing. And you know, those are the lessons that stay with you forever. And those are the ones that increase your value even within yourself. And when you are about, you know, face to uh, in that situation, again, you can always go back to that. Remember. Remember what happened when, right? Like, and that will always remind you that you need to increase your value and really stand up for what you believe and also keep within your integrity, which I think right. is the most important thing, right? Is to not sell yourself out because Absolutely. that, that leads to so much doubt and, and, um, resentment. All right. So we're going to shift. That was great though. That's a great story. Sure. I wish everyone listening will have that moment in their business as well. Um, so let's talk about not ugly. We're not going to go ugly yet, but let's talk about the bad. <laughs> yeah. We had to brace the people, uh, prepare them. So tell us about a bad story. Yeah. I, I can talk about some unpleasant like experiences that I've had painting. Talk about one in particular. I am going to try to be n- not detailed about this one just yes. because it's like, I just don't like, you know, people, people involved might be listening and I don't want to No. I don't want to disparage the project in general, but like I had, I had a project where it was part of a people listening, you'll be able to figure out what project it is if you know my work, but like, whatever. Um, so it's a, it's a residential complex on a, on a 
like it's next to like public public area right and so this is development and so part of their part of their whole development incentives is like they have to incorporate public art in order to be able to build there and so the people who are in charge of this public area have to be involved in the in the selection of the artist and the you know content of the project and everything so like as soon as i hear like okay it's by committee like you know that's this is i'm going to be in for it but that's fine so i i get the call for it and they're like listen you know we have this project we're not really happy with the applicants that we've gotten so far we'd really like to talk to you about working on this project and i was like i was happy i like this looks like a really this is a cool wall it's good visibility like i'd love to do this and the budget was set for the project so like and it was considerably lower than what I would ask for the, a wall that size. But again, like, you know, in terms of being willing to work for less, like it's a matter of circumstance and incentive. It's like, this is somebody that I, you know, it's a, it's goodwill on my part, you know, I'm like, yeah, like I'm, I understand. And they're, you know, had me do a couple of other projects for them. So like a relationship building over time and, you know, I'm like, okay, well, I know it should be more. And I know that you can't offer me more. And so like, I'll, I'll do it anyway. You know, but that's just a personal choice. Um, part, you know, if you're, if you're willing to work for less, uh, you know, I sit there and go like, don't work for less. And I'm like, you, you know, you can work for less if you are in control of your decision. Right. Exactly. You know? And or, you're not like or, feeling like you have to, because if you don't, you know, then you'll never be the kind of artist you want to be, I don't know, whatever, all that stuff. So anyway, so I made decision to, to take, take the hit on the project and started the design process. They kind of told me what they were looking for. And I gave them one design, which my initial design was like, not even, it was not good. Like, it was just like, okay, this is a park project. So I think it's, you know, and they didn't like it. And they were like, I mean, it was a little more on the nose, like in terms of like community, like, and they were like, this is the committee speaking, like the the park committee and like the the people who hired me, the, the building who hired me, already knew and had confidence in my work. So it was really about convincing the committee and they come back and they're like, well, you know, it's a little like, you know, you know, it's not really like you, we've seen your work and like, we like this kind of stuff. So like, do it like this. And I was like, okay, easy. Like, so I, I was really trying too hard at my first pass. And so I came back around with a new sketch and a new, like fully, it was like a full abstraction, colorful, like lots of people, like that kind of thing. And I start getting this feedback from one particular member of the committee that's like starting to sound like unpleasant and negative. And just kind of like, based on my interactions with this person, I got the impression that the way in which they view the world had them racially problematizing everything. And so that's what I was I was starting to get it's like at first our first interaction was pleasant they were like we love this work we wanted to do it this way and then I come back and it's like you know you think that I like you've you've made a judgment about me and I can tell like based on the way you're saying they're giving the feedback they're giving and it was like you know we know that these people are purple like I was making like I'm not using representational colors it's like they they look they're purple but they read white and that's a problem because we have a very diverse community. And I'm like, okay, like I see where this, I, like I see what kind of a conversation we're about to have. And so I'm like, you know, at the, I'm conciliatory at the first. I was like, listen, like, you know, I understand. I, I appreciate your feedback. Like this isn't obviously my interpretation of things. And this is, I had like a statement accompanying the whole thing. I was like, these things were made, like put this way for a reason. And they come back and they're like, it's not like, an, it's not enough. So I make the changes. And then like, every time I come back, she's like, well, you know, are, are the, are the, people who look like this, like supposed to be like, I couldn't, you know, I, the people with their heads cut off look like only the black people have their heads cut off. I'm like, um, that's not like, 
I'm, I'm uncomfortable with this, this conversation here. And it's like, so I make these changes and make sure that there's enough racial diversity in, involved and make sure that everything is equal. And at the time it's like, a, it's all colors and everything like that. And it's just like, I'm starting to feel like, like, I don't, I, I don't think that me making changes to this design is going to solve the problem that you have, mm. you know, yeah. like, which is yes. like, it's like you, your, your problem is that you're seeing, like it, you're seeing things that aren't there and I can't help you with that, you know? So yeah. like, and it, it, like we had a couple more back and forth where it was like, why didn't you include this? Why did you include that? Why didn't you like, I'm not seeing enough curly hair representative of my community in this thing. I'm like, there's no, there's no head, there's no heads, you know? I'm like, this is an abstraction of a, of a scene that does not purposefully issues identity and racial politics because it's supposed to be like a rainbow basically. And then like after this back and forth, I'm just like, I hate this project. And, and then I, you know, I kind of find out later from the rest of the group that it's like, okay, well, this person really is not a voting interest in our committee. And I'm like, well, why is this person the only one giving feedback? So ultimately I get my design approved, like less the complaints from this one person. But by that time, it's just like, so I'm so beaten down and watered down and and like by the, like the design is so watered down that I'm just like, I don't, I'm not even excited about this anymore. You know? And that, like, like that's a thing that you have to deal with. And I don't want to sit there and say like, you know, all, I don't want to say that like, it's entirely wrong to want to feel like your mural adequately represents your community that it's in. Like, I think that's actually a very valid thing to seek out, but it was just kind of the way in which it was it was just like, like, like this, like everything was just being picked apart and like problematized in a way that it was obvious. It wasn't in the service of finding a solution. It was just like in the service of, of criticizing and picking it apart and making it like making it wrong any way that it was possible. And so like, and eventually I got, you know, feedback from the committee that it was like, yeah, this is, this is kind of an ongoing problem with this one individual and they're not really a voting interest anyway. And so like, we're going to approve the design. I'm like, like I went through months of like hating this project because. Yeah. That doesn't make sense. Does it? Like it's not. Yeah. And so like, it just doesn't, I mean, you have to assume that people have the best of intentions and start from there. Like, cause otherwise it's just a, it's just a nightmare conversation, you know, and it's not going to go anywhere because you're already, the person is already your enemy before you've even negotiated anything. And so then like, you know, I'm not, you know, not enthusiastic about it. Like it looks okay, but like, I could have done a better job. I could have done a much better job with that. But like, I mean, everybody who sees it loves it. So I can't, you know, I have, had, I have to be very careful to ever publicly say like, I don't like a piece mm-hmm. because I don't want to disrespect the people who see it, who actually do love it. And I just had a terrible experience conceptualizing it and installing it because then also like I installed it in the middle of July in a hundred degree heat and there's no shade and I had to work at night. And it was just like, it does not look like it, it does not look anything like it looked in my mind. And that's just the way it is. And, you know, when you're doing public art, like it will happen sometimes where the work does not look like it looked in your mind for whatever reason, you could have done a better job and you didn't. And it lives you know, like that's the other thing. It's like, you can't just, t- you can't throw it away. Right. So and people is, are enjoying it. Like and people, even and some people do enjoy way. it. And it, yeah. it is like, it is not a bad mural. It's just not what I wanted to make. That's right. And part of it was not being like, not feeling confident in my ability to, to produce something that was going to be effective for the community based on these interactions and then feeling frustrated also. And then also 
being completely physically taxed by the installation process. And mm. I should have, I also, I really should have not. It's hard to, I, I, I have some more control now over when I install murals. And sometimes I don't have control and sometimes I just, it just happens that I have to do it now. And it's like this and stuff. And, you know, now I, I've put in place, like I, I, I'm upcharged my murals if it's going to be like that, but I didn't at that point. That's another thing about editing your contracts. So I'm like, you know, if it's, if you want me to do it in the middle of July when it's 110 degrees, like it's going to be more because it's and like, I mean, fair. I it's fair. That's it's like, fair. it takes, yeah, it takes can... twice as much out of me to do that. Well, and it gives the client a chance to say, well, no, maybe we'll do it in October instead, right? Mm -hmm. If they want to save money, like they have their option too, but you're right. Yeah, especially given that it's like, you know, not even new construction projects, they're always panic and they're always like, we need it now. And then you get there and it's like, buildings not even built yet. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> yeah. um, that is so real, isn't it? Oh, oh God. my gosh. Like I, do, I do a lot of, uh, I do a lot of, projects on new construction and it's always like that and i don't blame people that's just their mindset but it's like how can i be more clear like this is not a major installation this is finished this is this is like the week before you open this goes in that's anyway too much i can't like i can't tell you how many times i've shown up to a job and it's been like and like you know open circuitry hanging from the walls like it's like there's not like there's no lights in here i can't paint like it's like the, the wall I'm painting may be done, but it's like, it's dark and dusty and there are buzz saws going off. And like, I can't just, they don't get it. Yeah, It's like, <laughs> I, so, and that's another thing. Like I've gotten very good now at like, I need to show up to a job. I need to get eyes on it before I agree to start. If it's not ready, it's not ready. I, I did, I did like once leave a job that was out of state because I showed up, I drove in out of state from out of state to do it. And it was not ready. It was like that. I was like, I can't work here. Like, and I had to call the client and be like, listen, I, I can't work here. And I did tell you, like, I did tell you the state that I expected the project area to be in when I arrived and it's not in that state. So like, not only do I have to leave and come, re we have to reschedule the installation, but I have to charge you for my travel. Yeah. Well, and that's, you know? fair, and that's right? another thing. It's like, you know, I could have just, I could have just like not had that conversation, but I had to have that conversation because otherwise I'm that person that just doesn't have that conversation, you know, isn't willing to like tell people how it needs to be. Hold and that's like, right? you know, in my, in my mind, like I'm not only just doing myself a service, I'm doing an other artists a service too, because I'm changing the expectation or at least I trying agree. to make an effort to change the expectation. Yeah. All right. Well, that sounded ugly, but I know we have to still talk about ugly. <laughs> yeah. We have to talk about ugly. I, I always been, it'd be nice to end on good instead of ending on I ugly. Know, but I know, but it just doesn't flow, you know? You're yeah, right. The phrase is the phrase is the way it is. Um, well, and you know what? And we want to leave the people with the most hope we can. And so when they hear ugly, then they can they can believe in themselves that much more. It's true. Yeah. And I feel like all of my stories have a, have, a, there's a lesson learned in everything. So I'm, yes. I'm willing to, to go. Okay. So let's go ugly. Let's go ugly. And okay. So this time I'm not going to try to be vague. I won't go so far as to name people, but um, it, it does, it is applicable to the story. So I have to say, um, this is another story that involves the Google fiber project that I did in 2018. And uh, like, if I'm honest, that, that project ended up being a, a huge mess for reasons that I'm not going to go into here, like in terms of how it was delivered upon, like the promises were delivered on. But this one is, this one is, has to do with uh, the subjects of the mural. And the, so I had like, 
I like I told you my the last time I talked about this project was that like we had decided to do it became an AR project. They wanted to do like a, a documentary process video about the mural as it was going in because it's like it's a cool project, it's AR, it showcases me as an artist, like it's a you know the, it was built they built it to me as like a gift to Raleigh basically. So like not an ad, just like a documentary film. And they wanted to get the footage from the beginning conception to me sketching things out, like me in my studio, me filming the dancers that I was, that I captured for the mural and then all the way up through the AR process and on to completion. So I reached out to like the dancers I was going to photograph anyway, I could reach out to five. I chose five local dancers, Durham and Raleigh based. And one, I actually really like one really wanted to do it and was not available. So I had to replace him with this other gentleman that I'd never met before. And so I had, you know, sent them an email expl- explaining the project, explaining what it was, offering them, you know, like telling them, I just need you to dance for me for about an hour. I'll pay you each. Like I paid him like, paid him like a hundred bucks a piece for like an hour of dancing. And I said, this project is going to be, it's going to be filmed. And the film is going to turn into a, just a little short follow the artist documentary thing, you know, probably go up on YouTube channels and it'll go around on the like downtown Raleigh, like I'll, I'll definitely show it in my portfolio, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and they're all like, that sounds great. This is really cool. Like I'm ha- I'd love to be a part of it. Blah, blah, blah. So we get there, like the Google fiber has hired these guys out to fly out from California to film it. Um, guys that they've worked with before. I'm like, great. Like really top, top notch filmmakers are on my project. Like this is really exciting. So they get, we, we book a time to shoot at this dance studio and, and I, like we have one, they are, they're in town for like one day. We get there to film and they're like talking, we're, you know, we're getting ready to go. And they're like, we forgot the release forms, like the waivers for everybody to sign before they get filmed. And I'm like, okay, well that's, you know, like, okay. So they're like, well, is everybody cool? Like, we'll just, we'll, we'll send them to you by email and they'll have you sign them. And everybody's like, great. And I'm like, I'm like, that's like, okay, like, <laughs> that's not a good idea. Like to, to go through with this without getting this, getting the signatures. So I think, you know, where this is kind of have an idea of where the story's going to go, but so they forget them and then they decide like a gentleman's agreement is sufficient to like do their filming because they're only in town for a day. Um, and then they're going to send the release forms right away. And everybody at that point, like is agreeing and then shoot goes fine. We leave, they continue, and then I kind of forget about it. Like they continue the filming, they film, they, they can't come back like a couple of times. I fly out there, like it's just this whole thing. And the video is made and ready to go. And then they send around the, the release forms and I send them around to every artist or every dancer and four of them sign and send back. And the fourth guy, the one that I hadn't met that I, re- that, you know, just came on as a replacement is like, he sends back this letter and his attitude is just completely different. And it's like, I'm a professional dancer. I live in New York. And if you want to attach me to my likeness to this Google commercial, it's going to be $5,000. And it's like, I'm like, okay, well, I kind of told you this was going to happen. First of all, if you know, like, I, I don't want to say I completely blame this guy for capitalizing on the opportunity, but like, I'm like, this is kind of your, you guys's problem. But you know, the issue I, I run into is like, okay, first of all, he see, 
he sees the Google name attached. He thinks it's an ad. He thinks he's going to get like, he's going to shake them down for some money. And I'm like, this is not that kind of project. Like you have to understand how the budget works. I had to beg for extra money to get like, you know, for me, like, and this isn't an ad, like, this is not, this is about the project itself. So like, why don't you sit down and talk to us and we can, we can talk this through and see if I can, if we can come to an agreement. And this guy, like, won't. he's just, his responses are all just like these catty bitch responses. Like I'm, you know, too good for this project. And if you want to use me, then you're going to have to pay. And like, clearly doesn't know how to negotiate. Cause I'm like, you know, you can walk away with nothing or you can have a conversation with us about like, and allow us the opportunity to, t- to tell you what this is about, which I thought well, I was clear on at the very beginning, but I guess not. And so, you know, they can't edit them out. And at this point they're like, this guy's going to get litigious and we're not willing to take the risk. And so like, what happened was the pro- the video never got released. The video that we'd spent all of this time on and that was supposed to be this big moment for me as an artist and for the project and for Raleigh, like got completely fell apart because this one guy like wouldn't have, wouldn't even have a conversation. It was just like, no, I want, I want this. And that's like F you if you're gonna not gonna give it to me. And I'm like, listen here, like I would never do that to another artist. Like it doesn't matter what the circumstance was or what which corporation's name was attached to it. Like I would not do that to another artist and to the five, to the four others that didn't get a chance to have their, to be featured in this video because you decided to be a bitch. I was just, I was so sad and offended and like, and upset and, and pissed at, at the, you know, people pro- managing the project because they didn't see that coming, you know, and they didn't, they waited months to send the, around these release forms until the video was, over and he had the chance he had a chance to see it and be like oh this looks like an ad like i'm gonna you know oh, i'm gonna Taylor. get i'm gonna get i'm gonna get mine you know and yeah, so like piece, right yeah and it's like i people just people are just vult- like they see a corporate name and they're just they just become vultures and they don't see the big picture and they don't see what this what how this affects everybody else involved in the project and like how much work we put into it and how much you know what this was going to mean to me to be able to get release you know and so like, and that was that, like, he just, he just took down, took down the project single-handedly because he wasn't willing to, to be conciliatory at all, even though he understood the nature of the project and I explained it to him, but he didn't, you know, we weren't friends. He didn't owe me anything. Yeah. He was just, he was looking out for himself and I'm sure he lives a meaningful and happy life to this day as a result of his attitude. But yeah, I'm, I'm just, it's, it's, it was so ugly. And then I was like, there was that thing. And then like the, the project just kind of it just kind of fell apart from there like all of all of the marketing was just dead in the water because that was everything was hinged on that yeah um so i you know i was promised a lot of press that that didn't come my way after that and i'm like i'm just like that's just if you feel like you deserve more from this project you knew who you were working with from day one i didn't keep a secret like you knew it was google fiber like you could have you could have backed out on the day sure you didn't like you waited until this whole project was complete and then you acted like a mm. <laughs> yep <laughs> fill in the blank fill in the blank oh girl so, you know what i find interesting is that we started this with the good mm-hmm. and the good was that same account mm. and we're gonna end it with the ugly And the ugly is the same account. I think that that is so amazing in a sense of what could be your greatest moment could also be the ugliest moment. 
And it is the same exact story, but we're in the beginning and then we're in the end. And isn't that unbelievable? Yeah, I mean, it is. It's like there, I mean, I think what I would take, what I would leave people with for even from these ugly stories that like, you know, people can F you over. Like people are, everybody's looking out for themselves and people like things can fall apart easily just because someone decides to be, to act like crazy, you know, not, not a part of civilization, you know, and like, um, and it can feel like unjust and like unfair and everything. And, you know, people can not like your art or clients can come in and, and be disappointed with the work. Like, I don't know, like any number of things can happen. And it's like, so it happens. Like things happen that you don't like sometimes. And there's not a whole lot to be done about it other than to like brush it off and move on and learn from it and just be like, I'm never gonna do that again. I'm always gonna bring my paperwork. I'm always gonna get the signature first. Like not gonna, not gonna put my trust in people. Like I don't, you know, I don't, it's not that I don't put my trust in people, but it's like always cover your ass and get the paperwork. Like I don't do anything without a contract because as soon as you trust one person you're like, okay, j- just this one time, it's going to be fine. It's not that one time is going to be the one that you're going to get. Yeah. And that screwed happened. and that happened. And that happened. And it's happened a couple of times, actually, like in different ways. Like I've just been, you know, you, you can't let it, you can't let that one thing be the thing that makes or breaks you either. So, Oh, that's so powerful. And listen, this is what I have to say to this is that what if that video went out and what if that guy is going around the world with bad integrity, screwing people over and you were all associated with it? Oh, I don't know about that. Yeah. What if? Maybe. maybe. I mean, the video. Yeah. Like what if that was a gift? What if that was a gift? Because. Yes. Right. And I think that, you know, for our listeners, like we have to point that out. It's like when it is the most devastating thing, sometimes it happens for you and not Mm -hmm. to you. Right. Like you have no idea what maybe you were protected from in the future because of not being associated with this person. Sherry, maybe, maybe it turns out to be a serial murderer. And I'm like, (laughs) well, who knows? I never knew that guy. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, this has been so, so amazing. I hate to even say goodbye. This is just so, so much wisdom. I just, I just love everything that you're doing. I love the way you think. I love the way you do business and how you have the integrity. That's the highest integrity and that you're sharing with others, your wisdom on how they can do that too and protect themselves in business and grow and have an integrity filled business and just unbelievable. And you know, what goes around comes around just by the way. Yes, it does. Karma can be your best friend, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah. So before we say goodbye, I just want to ask you to finish this one sentence for me. The world would be a better place if more people knew blank. The world would be a better place if more people knew that they are responsible for their choices and actions and they're completely in control of what happens to them in life. And that's what I mean by that is like, yeah, things will happen. Things will happen to you. You're, you'll get, things will happen to you that you don't like. And you can be, you know, you can lament that they happened and be a victim 
or you can understand that you have the power, you have a hundred percent of power in that situation to control how you're going to respond and what you're going to do next. And once you realize that like you're a hundred percent responsible, it takes, it means that you have all of the power. It means that things can't be done to you. Things can happen that you don't like, but things can't be done to you in a way that you can't control. So I wish more people would understand that concept. And I think that a lot of the strife and conflict and wailing and gnashing of teeth that happens in the world would, would be made a little less by people taking up that mantle of responsibility for themselves. That's a mic drop right there. Oh my gosh. And to our listeners, thanks so much for joining us today. I don't know where you are in your life or your business, but if you are face down on the ground right now, get back up, girl, get back up. You can do it. Hey, thanks so much for hanging out with us today. If you were inspired or learned something new, please subscribe to the podcast, give us a review and share us with your friends. For more information about me and how I can support you, please stop on over to my website at camilehman.com and book a free call with me. I'd love to meet you and learn more about how I can support you.